0: Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast we talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive in scuba new news. Scuba Obsessed episode 349 is recorded live November 9th, 2017. Welcome to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jolson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where we are losing our leaves. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac?
1: I'm doing very well, thank you. And yourself?
0: I am doing great. Uh, But uh, I I noticed that uh, I I have a car that I parked under a tree and we didn't drive it for a couple days and that was when the tree decided to lose all its leaves. uh, and it's quite a large maple. It's a one that's fairly well established. And it seemed like we went from color and pretty in the tree to bare branches in about three or four days. And right now the wind is howling, so it's we're losing what last few ones are are remaining. It has to be pretty uh, obscured in the bottom of the river.
1: Uh, it must be getting that way. I know the the hardwoods are just starting to lose their leaves. All the softwoods are pretty much nude around here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did get up in here the other day, took a picture or two, and if you looked at them, you can see that the colors are right now maximum, and that's the color that you're seeing are the hardwoods.
0: Yes. Yeah, I agree. Now, when you say hardwoods, uh, like a maple is a softwood, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah I can say those are maple or like hickory, mm-hmm. those kind.
0: Oh, yeah, hickory. or an Oak. Oak or, yeah, certainly walnut. Yeah, you know, those are the the harder woods, right? Uh, they're, and they're the
1: last ones to get the leaves on in the uh-huh. spring, and then the last ones in the winter.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I, I agree. Yeah, certainly that's what that's what we're we're seeing here as well. So I'd like to thank everybody who all the fruit trees. Oh yeah, yeah yeah. Those are yeah they're, they're all they're gone. Yeah, they they've been gone for a while. Uh, but I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. Yeah, we have uh, T K D Derek. We have Eric. Uh, we've got uh, Ted Word. So thank you, and uh, there was a question in the chat room before the show asking when we're going to be doing audio 100% Discord, and we're getting real close. What the challenge is is uh, I can record from Discord. Uh, we can talk in Discord. I need to get with you, Mac, and uh, Jim and Kevin, and, and get everybody to get the Discord installed. But I, I'm having a problem bridging other audio in, which is something I want to do, but we may just make the jump in between now now and then and uh try it anyway but so we're we're real close um you know actually knock on wood skype has been uh fairly reasonable uh, my problems haven't been skype it's been other things uh but yeah we're, we're, we're getting close so we'll, we'll be losing talk shoe in the not too distant future so tonight we as we promised last week we were going to continue on with talking about some cold water diving so we're going to do the news a little differently this week we're, we've got uh five articles I actually found, about nine or ten we could have covered. So we're going to do two or three before we go and talk about the feature of uh, more tips. And then if we've got time, we'll fill it, finish up with a few more uh, articles. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. Uh, and many of these articles this week are follow-ups from ones we had, we had covered in the past. First one is out of, uh, it's, a, it's a coin collecting source, in, uh, which explains the their interest in a topic. It says, more shipwreck gold found from SS Central America. Uh, the SS Central America, an American steamer that sank in the Atlantic in 1857, carrying a significant quantity of gold bullion. Its original haul, estimated at more than a metric ton, was perhaps as much as 20 tons, including thousands of which are now scarce double Eagle coins. Although the first coins and treasures from the wreck started to be recovered in 1986, litigation over the project's funding, i.e. investors getting stiffed and how the profits made from the treasure would be divided if carried on to this day. Much of the ship's treasure has been recovered by a company called Odyssey Marine, which I happen to be a very minor stockholder in between the initial 1986 findings, and as recently as 2014, after decades of battle in court against one of the firm's founders, the treasure honey Tommy Thompson, the majority of the SS Central America treasure has finally been sold. With a cargo of coins, gold ingots, and other gold bullion on board worth somewhere around $40 in melt value alone, the ill-fated ship carried one of the legendary treasures of the 19th century. The sinking of the SS Central America even caused a financial panic in 1857 by virtue of how much money in gold was lost at sea in the wreck. In 2014, a small portion of the bullion was on, on board was brought to the surface. To date, only a comparatively trivial amount of historic treasure has gone to auction. Back in 1999, with the help of California Gold Marketing Group and auctioneer Sotheby's, the, late, the latest court filing suggests that recovery efforts original investors, benefactors, insurers will finally be getting returns they're owed from the sale of the treasure. News of an upcoming sales reported in the Columbus Dispatch whose parent company is actually one of the Treasure Project's initial creditors, similar to bankruptcy proceedings. Various investors and creditors are paid with funds from selling the treasure. The order who gets paid first depends on who has legal priority in terms of interesting numis, oh gosh goodness, uh, numismatic rarities. And uh, I've got two or three magazines that I, I print on the topics, so I should be able to pronounce it, uh, have been documented from the SS Central America. The shipwreck yielded a great number of mint state 1857-S $20 Liberty head double uh, gold double eagles, which were struck in the San Francisco mint. So
1: Now, the disadvantage to putting those out for sale is the rarity aspect goes down mm-hmm. and the collective price... Do we lose you, Mac? I hope not.
0: said the rarity price goes and then it cut off. Hello? Hello?
1: Yeah, can you hear me? I can now. Oh, Uh,
0: all right. (laughs) You're you're talking about the rarity price, and that's where it cut off.
1: Oh, it's like, you know, you had a few before, and now you have a bunch. Mm -hmm. So the aspect of being really special goes down. And Mystic is based on how rare it is. So from that aspect... You know, you ought to be able to pick up one a lot cheaper than you could have 10, 15 years ago.
0: Yeah. Well, I do know that in the coin collecting circles, they like to whine about shipwrecks because the the quality of coins in shipwrecks tends to be better, especially in gold, because they're fairly resistant to corrosion, than the coins that have been even lightly circulated, you know, that are over 100 years old. So it's, it's the case that, you know, that's why they talk about melt value. And what happens is they like to trickle them in so slowly that they become unnoticed. Uh, Their trade, but you know, for for the most part, they're uh, if somebody needs to liquidate. If you watch any of these auction shows or uh, pawn shop shows, they don't care what the gold is of, unless somebody's there with cash in hand. But the most they're going to pay is uh, you know melt prices.
1: Yeah, um, bullion price.
0: Yeah. Uh, so and that's why this this publication is interested because it affects if you've got it if there's going to be some uh, new entries into the market you uh, you know, you have to judge what you've got and act accordingly.
1: Yeah, that would be really nice if you had a you know nice wall picture of the ship itself even mm-hmm. sinking and then right by it another framed you know double eagle that'd be pretty cool.
0: Yeah, and that's what uh, you know companies such as. Uh, Odyssey Marine were trying to do with both gold and silver and other things was not just the value that they have, which they'll always have, uh, but also the you know the historic value, of the collector, the collectible value. You know, to, to think when you've got that coin, you know that that set how many years underwater, and uh, you know the, the events surrounding it. So, uh, but as with any proper investment. <laughs> You want to be diversified. You don't want to uh, put all your eggs or bullion in one basket. Uh, ne- next article is the world's biggest grave robbery, and this is in reference to uh, ships in the Asia area that have been disappearing, specifically World War II ships. Uh, dozens of warships believed to contain the remains of British, American, Australian, Dutch, and Japanese servicemen from the Second World War had been illegally ripped apart by salvage divers. This is uh, from the the website The Guardian. Uh, Analysts of ships discovered by wreck divers and naval historians have found that up to 42nd World War-era vessels have already been partially or completely destroyed. Their halls may have contained corpses of up to 4,500 crew. Governments fear other unmarked graves are at risk of being desecrated. Hundreds of more ships, mostly Japanese vessels that contain the war graves of tens of thousands of crew killed during the war, remain in a seabed. The rusted 70-year-old wrecks are usually sold as scrap, but the ships also contained valuable metals such as copper cables, phosphorus, bronze, propellers. Experts said grave diggers might be looking for even more precious tre- treasure, steel plating made before the nuclear testing era, which was filled with at- with the atmosphere with radiation. These submerged ships are one of the last source of low background steel, virtually radiation-free and vital for some scientific and medical equipment. You know, I hadn't heard of that. I mean, are they saying that uh, any steel after that has some trace amounts of radioactive material?
1: That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? I yeah. really hadn't heard anything like that before.
0: But it must be specific equipment that, you know, if you're trying to measure something, you don't want the housing of your own equipment to uh, affect it. But
1: uh, Well, no, but it's like, you know, you go to Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and uh, you take your little lying meter with you, and the background in the majority of the buildings you go visit have higher ratings than we have in our low-level activity at the nuclear power plant.
0: Oh, I believe it.
1: It's because of the marble and things like that have a lot oh. of radioactivity.
0: Oh, okay, yeah. Well, and then I I know that we've had through uh, some operations like Chicago has radium dial, and that when they originally tore down the factory, they just spread the debris around town as fill. So the when all these workers started dying and coming up with, uh, oh, what was it? Radium. Oh, they, they had uh, leukemia uh, at, an ext- at an extremely high rate. And then as part of the research, they started going back and they're finding that many of the schools were, were built on top of some of the fill from this plant. And it was the Geiger counters are going off the charts. so. Uh, but that's a, that's a whole another nother story. But uh, the Guardian revealed last year the wrecks of some of Britain's most celebrated warships have been illegally salvaged, leading to an uproar among veterans and archaeologists who accused the U.K. government of not moving fast enough to protect the underwater graves. Three ships, HMS Exeter, HMS Encounter, HMS Electra, contained the bodies of more than 150 sailors, all sank during operations in the Java Sea. In 1942, one of the costliest uh, sea skirmishes in the Allied during the war. In 2014, the wreck of the HMS Repulse and HMS Prison Wales, and the graves of more than 800 Royal Navy soldiers were found to have been damaged by scavengers. UK's Ministry of Defense demanded Indonesia protect the ships in its waters. A military wreck should remain undisturbed, and those who lost their lives on board still allowed to rest in peace. minister, minister- Goodness. A ministry spokesperson said, Since then, divers in Malaysia sent photos of Guardian showing the destruction of three Japanese ships that sank off the coast of Borneo in 1944 during the Pacific War. One of Australia's most treasured ships, light cruiser HMAS Perth, has also been wrapped up. Dan Tan, Australia's Minister for Veteran Affairs, told the Guardian, The HMAS Perth is the final resting place of more than 350 Australians, who lost their lives defending Australia's values and freedoms, so reports of the wreckage has been disturbed, are deeply upsetting and of great concern. James Hunter of the Australian National Maritime Museum was one of the divers who discovered the Perth was 60 to 70% gone. Born in the Midwestern U.S., he had been diving with his father since he was nine and worked as a maritime archaeologist for close to two decades, including the archaeological team that investigated the American Civil War submarine the H.L. Huntley, Throughout his career, Hunter had heard of piecemeal salvaging a wreck, stealing propellers and guns, or sometimes personal items of crew. But last year, the museum heard stories from the diving community in Indonesia that ships were being destroyed whole scale. I've been in this field for 20 years. I've never heard of a historic wreck, especially a large 8,000-ton steel hull being completely removed. I couldn't believe it. I almost refused to believe it, he said. But a month later, staring at the salty water Java Sea, Hunter saw how the salvagers had ripped the Perth from one end to the other. You may as well just go into a war cemetery and dig it up. It's no difference to me at all, said Hunter, who came from a military family as was completely horrified. The U.S. military has spent several delegations to Indonesia to try and protect its wrecks, several which have been targeted. Thousands of sailors rest at the bottom of the sea and veterans argue the vessels must be preserved as underwater war graves. Um, a nice infographic in this article, which we'll have in our show notes, Um uh, Large crane barges have been photographed above the wrecks, often with huge amounts of rusted steel on their decks. At the seabed, divers have found ships cut in half. Many have been removed completely, leaving a ship-shaped indent. Cambodian, Chinese, and Malaysia-registered vessels have been spotted above the shipwrecks. In some cases, the crews have been arrested. In one case, the looters were, had acquired a letter from the Malaysian University, which said the work was authorized as research. Illicit businesses... Which appears to have rocketed in the past 18 months remains shrouded in mystery, with some archaeologists suggesting selling corroded scrap metal is not worth the costly process of removing it from the seabed. If you look at the amount of money you'd be spending on salvage in this scale, return you would get is just a bunch of corroded metal. It doesn't seem to add up. Another point of confusion is the fact that plenty of accessible modern wrecks in the area have not been targeted. If you simply look at, at steel to melt down, go after modern wrecks. I don't st- understand why you would target a ship that is. Seventy-five years old and has got uh, marine growth all over it, and the metal's all corroded. And then they, they have a, a drawing which shows uh, how they, they go and, and salvage. They uh, believe the criminals may be turning a profit because the hulls are one of the few remaining deposits of low-background metals, having been made before atomic bomb explosions in 1945 and subsequent nuclear tests. The steel is free of radiation. This makes even small quantities that survived the, s- the salt water extremely useful for finely calibrated instruments such as Geiger counters, space sensors, and medical imaging. Some ancient ships, often centrally old Roman vessels in European water, have also been salvaged for their lead, which is also low radiation and used in nuclear power stations. Low, low radiation lead doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, other than well, affecting it- readings. I mean, because lead is, is resistive, I believe, for each inch, it, it's a 10% reduction in, in uh, you know, gamma rays.
1: Well, I know low background steel and any steel production produced prior to the detonation of the first atomic bombs in the 40s and 50s. And here, they talked about uh, modern steel is contaminated with radionuclides because of its production used atmospheric air so low background steel is so called because it does not suffer from such nuclear contamination the steel is used in devices that require the highest sensitivity for detecting radionuclides
0: so they must somebody must have contracts that they need cuz like they said you've unless you're just doing it because you, you're there and you just need whatever money you can scrape together it seems like this would be targeted I mean, you would have to actively have a demand for it, have a contract you can know that you can fill, and then you're incentivizing people to go and get this particular type of of steel.
1: Yeah, They were saying they used the steel like that in uh, Geiger counters, medical apparatus such as a whole body counting and lung counters, scientific equipment, uh, photonics, and aeronautical and space sensors. Uh, as these devices detect radiation emitted from radioactive materials they require an extremely low radiation environment for optimal sensitivity therefore the low background uh, chambers are made from low background steel with extremely heavy radiation shielding hmm. okay
0: like well, i guess i don't understand enough of it to, to see it but if they're if they're willing to pay more for that type of material then that could explain it
1: well, you go where the money is. I wouldn't be bringing it up if they couldn't sell it.
0: Yeah. Well, they're saying that even poor quality steel can bring about uh, 1 million pounds or $1.3 million a ship, especially with the added brass from pipework valued at about 2,000 pounds a ton and copper wiring roughly 5,000 a ton. And they're saying that that doesn't look like this trend is going to let up anytime soon. And then let's, ooh, I thought I had this article loaded up. Maybe I don't.
1: Want to talk about the Great Lakes?
0: Yeah. it's uh, So a recent study showed that Lake Michigan and Hur- Huron have changed drastically. At Brighton Beach outside of Duluth, the waters of s- Lake Superior stunningly clear. Looking into about six feet of water, it's easy to see smooth rocks at the bottom. But Lake Superior has lost its long-held titles, the cleanest of the Great Lakes. A recent study showed that Lakes Michigan and Huron have changed drastically. And not only did they show big changes, they also passed Lake Superior in terms of water clarity, said Gary Franz Steele, who co-authored a study in the Journal of Great Lakes Research. And this is really profound because if anyone's been in the Great Lakes for years, you recognize that Lake Superior is kind of always held as the clearest, most pristine of the five Great Lakes. For a study, scientists analyzed satellite images captured between 1998 and 2012. Over that period, a depth of light could penetrate into water increased by 20% in Lake Michigan and Huron. So what's going on? It's partially due to less runoff from phosphorus, which is common in farm fertilizers, but the dominant factor is the explosion of invasive zebra and quagga mussels in the lakes in the past 20 years or so. He said some of the world's highest concentration of quagga mussels are found in Lake Michigan. So in some figuratively, figuratively, oh goodness. So (laughs) So in a somewhat sense, you can almost walk in a bed of mussels from one side of the lake to the other. And all those mussels filter a lot of water. It's estimated Lake Michigan right now, mussels can filter the entire volume of water in six days. Each muscle eats plankton in the water. These plankton are dominant light absorbers, so remove plankton, the water gets a lot clearer. That's good, right? After all, you've been to eastern shore of Lake Michigan, you would know it's gorgeous, which we would have to agree. The water is aqua blue color. You can see down 30 or 40 feet, if you're lucky. And you feel the same way when I'm on a sailboat in Lake Michigan. It reminds me now of the Caribbean. This is Robert Schuchman, co-director of Michigan Tech Research Institute and co-author of the study, says you have to think about the ramifications of clear water. The plankton and mussels filter are also the base of the food chain. If they're gone, the rest of the food chain risks starvation. So it's very disconcerting because you take it to the limit. The Great Lakes may be totally clear. You're kayaking. You're seeing the bottom. But may end up being literally ecological deserts. The clear water has also led to a surge of dangerous algae. Cloud is a hot spot in the growth of the harmful bacteria that produces a botulism toxin, and that has killed a large number of fish and birds, including migrating loons. But I'll also be a bit of good news. The number of vase mussels have peaked in Lake Michigan, and he hopes to improve water clarity in Lake Michigan and on sparks a new sense of pride and stewardship. Back in Brighton Beach, 70-year-old Rob Howell knows firsthand how clear Lake Superior is. The retired firefighter and scuba diver has done about 500 dives in Big Lake, I drink it. I swim it. I eat the fish that comes out of it. Still the best. They call it superior for a reason.
1: Slightly prejudiced it there. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. So th- this is this pretty much uh, matches the article we had before, and it's based on the same study and some of the same people referenced. But uh, I mean, I understand what you're talking that's about. One of, Go ahead.
1: I was going to say that's one of the other aspects we had where they talked about don't worry about the. Uh, lake invasions of the carp. Uh-huh. As I said, basically Lake Michigan has been screwed over many times lately with different invasive species, and it always comes to a peak and then degrades and comes back with a, you know some kind of equilibrium. So this idea, even if the carp get in there, it'll do the same thing. But the problem with the equilibrium is it's not always the, the even way you want it to be.
0: Yeah, because game fish, that Many people like to enjoy and and partake in. Uh, other than stocking, they they're no longer they may no longer be viable. They're just not going to produce in any quantity that people are going to be able to fish.
1: But we have to admit that visibility has improved tremendously.
0: Oh, I, and I've only been diving you know for the last ten years, but I've seen improvement just in my time out there, and I've been in a lake all, all my life, and it is certainly clear.
1: Well, you figure in the early 60s, mid-60s, visibility on the Iron Ironsides on a very good day was three, four feet. And if you looked at Kevin Ailes' photo he took a couple of months ago, 100 feet. Tremendously, you know, different.
0: Well, let's go ahead and talk about the topic of the evening and uh, which, which one did you want to go over? Well, the,
1: the first item I was going to mention that anybody who's been on the club site go to about 2010. And there's an item there that talked about cold water diving and how you should prepare yourself. It went into a little bit about, you know, the body heat can be robbed 32 times faster in the water than in air. And you did a really good explanation of the process that we use, three finger mitts as opposed to five, how we use the warm water to uh, get the suit warm before you put it on and add it as you're, you know, before you get in. And then when you get out, pour some more warm to keep your body heat going. So what I'm doing there is recommending you go read it. There's some tweaks we can do to it, but that's still good. It hasn't changed since it was uh, put out back then, and I think it was 2000
0: yeah i'm i'm gonna pull up a few links and uh, maybe we'll get those added into the show notes but you you type in cold water scuba diving and you know just to make sure you hit our website you'd say you add uh, scuba obsessed to it and you're going to see several links but even if you don't do that we are the top result for talking about cold water scuba diving uh it, and and it is, it is good. I don't know. I I've talked about updating it and and maybe we will. Uh, so there's one and in what it started it, it was back when we had uh, Jim Kleeman on the show in our early days. Uh so there's an article April 12th 2010, Tips for uh cold water scuba diving in a wetsuit. And then we had a uh, we had the podcast which was episode uh 307 in November 19 2016. Um, that w- oh that was um, last year this time
1: when we talked about it yeah
0: yeah so we talked about it so uh, you you may want to go back and listen to that one that's also one of our top episodes so that's telling me is that people are are searching for it uh, but we we went into a lot we talked about priming water uh, if you don't know what priming water is go take a look at the article uh, it'll go into it and ask some questions if if after you read this you still have some questions let us know and we'll be able to. Uh, answer them.
1: And taking that as a background, the other aspect is pretty much again. If you if you've been diving in chilly water, cold water, you're probably going to know all this anyway. But tips to combat cold water diving in the beginning. Number one is start out with a hearty breakfast with heat generating carbohydrates to feel you know to fuel your body. Bring warm water for suit filling, regulator warming, warming your hands. And defrosting zippers and frozen regulators from your tank, valve as needed. And you'll use it for all of those, especially if it's a really windy day when you're out there diving. And when I say windy, we have dove out there when it's zero degrees and 38 degree water. So when you got out, you needed to get to a warming shack real quick or you couldn't get out of your suit. Uh, the other item is very important is to stay warm on the surface but by the same token, don't overheat, don't start sweating. So when you're out there making the, the patterns in the snow with the shovel, you don't want to overwork that. Uh, when you're out there cutting the hole in the ice, you don't want to get overheated before you actually start getting ready to dive. Other item you want to do is have all your gear ready before you suit up, meaning you're already dressed, you're warm, you got good gloves. Put your kit together, you know, get your tank on your BC, get your regulator set up. Don't burp your regulator yet. You know, get all your weights ready to go. And then anticipate what are the risk factors that you're going to be doing. Well, risk factors for an icing event are your diving depth, scuba tank pressure, which most people do not know about or think about, your ventilation or your flow rate, regulator design, and the time that you anticipate on being down. Those are factors that are going to influence how cold you get and how your equipment's going to react. To limit freezing risk, believe it or not, a lower-pressure tank is recommended for cold water. And we're talking instead of 3,000, 4,000, 1,500 is a good time. You say, well, they normally want you to be going less than 100 feet out from your hole, if you're talking ice diving, and less than 30 feet. So you're going to maximize the amount of time you can have with a lower fill of your tank. Key item there is the higher the pressure in your fill tank, or your, your scuba tank, the higher the risk you have of a regulated freeze-up. Another item is the drier the compressed air, the lower the freezing risk. So those are some of the items you can do to help minimize when you might have a free flow. Now, when you're dressing, you layer up. You put on the wooden, woolen undergarments, then your dive suit. So it's always smart to wear a woolen skull cap under your hood. You can have it on before you even start doing your, your dive setup woolen socks with your booties. You can wear the thin woolen gloves under thin latex gloves under your dive gloves. Uh, anticipate being more buoyant with the extra clothing and have a few pounds extra available. And by that, if you have clip-on weights, which is basically a, a couple of pound weight with a snap shackle on it that you can put on your rings, that if you're two pounds light, you're not having to struggle too much, they can clip one on, you go under and see if you're trimmed out. So, clip-on weights, really helpful to have around. Uh, if you're doing wet or semi-dry, prime your wetsuit before you put it on, and or, like a lot of people do, do it afterwards also. About the only thing I really prime prior is my boots and my gloves, because I like to have them on, you know. So, put your gloves on last. Another reason to have warm surface gloves on until you're ready to go. Uh, if you're diving wet or semi-dry, plan on short, shallow dives, And it's really recommended to keep your dives no longer than 20 to 30 minutes. And that 20 to 30 minutes will go by really quick because generally you're going to be very comfortable for a minimum of that in a nice-fitting wetsuit. And by nice-fitting wetsuit, I'm talking about it's going to be really nice and snug to your body, but it's not going to be tight that you can't breathe. There's a difference. Now, entry, as we spoke about last week, you got to be cognizant of Entry equals cold water shock to the face. So when you first get in, acclimate before you're starting to go underwater. Stop shallow, acclimate to being underwater, and then verify your regulator is working correctly. Now, from that aspect, remember to inflate your BC and or your wing slowly and preferably during the exhalation phase to unload your first stage. All right, when I have all that extra air. I'm trying to do my BC, my wing, breathe in deep. You don't really want to do that. The other item is remember to always have the second stage breathing resistance adjuster set to minimum when it's not being breathed from and entering the cold water. If you're going into the river, especially when I've had free flows, it's been in river diving because my octopus will be on my chest, the river hits it and it'll burp it. Soon as she burps, especially if it's as you're getting in and out, you'll get a free flow. Uh, the other is avoid breathing from your second stage out of the water when the temperature is low, and that burping again. Keep it set to the minimum so it's hard to breathe. Uh, a warm water regulator free flow is typically breathable, so you should not panic. Getting the air you need to ascend or correct the problem is not difficult. In cold water induced free flow, though, the geyser can be so cold as to make you feel like you're breathing liquid nitrogen. So and you know, and so forcefully, you have to be safe. You have to be concerned with it. You know it's going to happen and relax. It's hard to do, but it's necessary. Another item is to be streamlined. And streamlined, of course, means you're going to have less resistance to your swimming and or flow if you're in a river, which means you're going to be breathing less hard and watch your air consumption. Um, the other key item is do not ever wait till you're shivering to end the dive you got to remember, it's not a contest. Who can stay down longer? You get out when you start feeling cold. This is not a macho. And besides, if you're diving wet, people think you're crazy anyway, so get out. <laughs> uh, on the exit, once out, go to your shelter and dress in stages. And it, it, that sounds sort of silly, but that's the smart way to do it. You take your hood off, dry your hair, put back on another dry, woolen, or warm head cover. 20% of your body heat is really out of your head. That's not... 50 or 60%, 20%. But at 20%, warm thing on your head feels really good. Uh, Then you take your top off, especially if you're doing a wetsuit, and you dry your top of your body, put on some warm clothing. You're already halfway warmed. Then your leg pants and your booties, you dry yourself, get yourself dressed. And when we talk about the warm water, I always take a thermos and I have me a warm drink. And you can have cocoa, coffee, soup, whatever you like. But having something really warm, it doesn't have to be blistering hot. You know, warm is going to make a big difference. And now that you're warm, dressed, and your hands warm by dry mittens, you can go out and gather and inventory your wet gear. Collect that gear, place in large plastic tubs or sleds for easy transport. And it's really a pain in the butt to get back to your car, or you get home and you figure out, where did I put my whatever? All right, that's why you gather it and inventory it. And again, I've been using plastic tubs and, and sleds for transport. Everything goes in it, so at least I know it's backed by my car. So, a few words to the wise.
0: Yeah, and and I like to say I, I agree with that wool wool makes such a difference, and if you can't afford wool, then uh, some sort of polyester uh, undergarment, uh, avoiding cotton. Uh, cotton just wicks the temperature away. You know they they're great at marketing, but it's it's not the material uh, to get wet and use underneath a wetsuit.
1: I'm trying to locate my other little item here. It doesn't want to stay. Okay. Now, along that lines, and this is one we're going to post, I'm quite sure, on the site. It's called Regulatory Standards, and my title was, excuse me, what is that unobtrusive lettering on your first stage? And we came into a little items. Quite often, you're going to look at your yoke or on the regulator body, and you're going to notice some numbers. And a lot of them say something like a C and a really funny-looking E with a lot of numbers. Those are typically the numbers of the group or station that is performing the inspection criteria on your regulator. The other item you're going to notice is a number like EN250. Now, EN250 is an assurance. It's a test standard. It's insurance that your regulator can deliver quality breathing performance beyond the recreational depth limit approximately 130. By that, they have tested your regulator is designed to operate at 165 feet below 50 degrees Fahrenheit with unchanged breathing performance in the first and second stage. They also specify the octopus will not perform to the same specification and its use is not recommended below 100 feet. Now, EN 250 is a requirement of the European standard for diving equipment to meet the demands that place demands that are placed on it at depth and under high breathing loads, it means that the regulator has been tested to make sure it would deliver gas at an acceptable depths, at an acceptable temperature, in any situation. Now that has changed a little bit. There's a new one called EN 250. Dot. Dot. 214. The new standards, decided in 2014, outline how an octopus rig. Single first stage and two second stages is not the preferred option. If you're diving deeper than 30 meters, 98.4 feet, or water colder than 10 degrees C or 50 degrees Fahrenheit. If you're diving in colder waters or deeper than 30 meters, basically, it is advised that you use only one second stage per first stage. From that, you now have EN 550 Alpha. It says your regulator is designed to operate at 165 feet and below, operate to, not at, 265 and below 50 degrees Fahrenheit with unchanged breathing performance in the first and second stages as well as the octopus. The 250 Alpha tests the first stage with the demand on the primary and alternate demand valve to simulate two divers breathing, breathing off a, a single first stage. And in your breathing on one, your buddy who ran out to breathing on your other huffing and puffing. If the first stage can deliver gas to two second stages, it will have an EN250 alpha stamped somewhere on it. So if your regulator has EN250 alpha stamp, stamped on it, then an octopus setup should be fine even in colder, deeper water. But, and they always qualify this one, dual valves will always be recommended. Uh, obviously, something follows suit. The next one, evolution, is EN 250 alpha, and then it'll have a a little V now or a dash. says 50 degrees Fahrenheit, or it may say 10 degrees centigrade. When the new EN 250 2014 regulators that are not designed for cold water, they will have to be marked with the backwards little U, 50 degrees or 10 degrees centigrade, somewhere on the first and second stages. Now, cold water, as they're defining it, is defined as water temperature below 50 degrees Fahrenheit or 10 degrees C. And regulators marked with the EN250A are tested to a temperature of 4 degrees C or 39 degrees Fahrenheit. Smaller, lighter regulators do not have enough metal parts to act as a heat sink and absorb heat from the waters to prevent icing up in cold water. So it should only be used in warmer waters. Like on my regulators, you'll see a number. I saw the number CE0078, and it'll be that or some variation. And that's the stamp of the center that tested the regulator. Now, because of that, I did a little note. I did a little looking around. So I call this my side note. There are are currently both philosophical and quantitative differences between the European standards and the United States Navy standard for cold water regulator testing. The Navy Experimental Diving Unit has developed testing procedures that are more rigorous than the EN250 tests currently used by European nations. Now, cold water here is defined as 37 degrees Fahrenheit in salt water, or for you Australians, 2.8 degrees centigrade. In fresh water, 38 degrees Fahrenheit may pose a risk for ice accumulator in the regulators, a regulator second stage with resultant free flow. Now, They decline or uh, define polar waters or frigid water or waters as defined as 28 degrees Fahrenheit minus 2 degrees C. Now, that uncertainty also explains the United States Arctic Program's policy of requiring full redundant first and second, second stage regulators and a sliding isolator valve that a diver can use to secure his gas flow should one of the regulators free flow the Navy's primary interest is in avoiding regulator free flow under polar waters and frigid waters, 28 degrees. The breathing effort, which is a focal point of the EN 250 standard, is of lesser importance, meaning it's not going to breathe as easy as the other ones, but they don't want you to because the volume of air you breathe and the the quickness and the rapidity of it leads to the icing. Now, risk factors for an icing event are diving depth, your scuba bottle or tank pressure, ventilation or the flow rate, the regulator design, and the time, meaning how much time are you under there. In engineering terms, mass and heat flow or heat transfer flow rates, time and chance determine the outcome of a dive in cold water. Now, a side note, I was reading some of their articles on their dives and of the ones they recommend using, even those calibrated and tuned, and they're not sitting somebody's gear bag for, you know, for months on end. They actually had some of those high-quality ones after 10 different dives free-flowed. So conditions change based on lots of variables. Just because it worked once, twice, or three times doesn't mean it's going to every time. And therein where they come out is their recommendations always for, will be two separate air bottles two separate first stage, two separate second stages. That way you've got a redundancy. And that doesn't mean you can't have a, a doubles with a Y connection or isolation valves. So when you have one go bad, you can save the air because you can still breathe it, but why not hold on to it a little bit? Uh, so they said water in non-polar regions can easily range between 34 and 38. At those temperatures, gas entering the second stage regulator can be at sub-freezing temperature. European Standard Organizations classify 50 degrees, 10 degrees, C, as a cold, non-cold boundary. The Navy has found in the modern high-flow regulators tested to date that 42 degrees Fahrenheit is the water temperature where second-stage inlet temperature is likely to dip below freezing. That's quite significant. significant. The last thing a cold-water diver should want is to make it easier to get more gas. High grass flow means higher temperature drops and greater risk of free flow. That's the other reason that if you're using supplied air from the surface, you don't have the same issues going through your second stages because your high-pressure air would be dependent upon your depth. And if you're doing the shallows, you're talking what, 100 PSI. Uh, so basically my advice to all muddies is to watch what the Navy is putting on. They're authorized for cold water service list, and we talked about that last week. The small number of regulators that show up on that list have passed the most rigorous testing in the world. And always remember, it's better to finish your dive before you finish your gas.
0: Yes, <laughs> a good point in that uh, I can't remember if we talked about it in the previous article, but when you 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 did allude to it in, in talking about uh, not breathing as much, uh, it, it takes... Not only the preparation before the dive, but how you breathe during the dive. You know, uh, you don't want to breathe off the regulator on the surface if you can avoid it. Uh, I still like to do the safety check just to make sure that I got some air coming in, but I may do that, uh, very early on and it's not a full breath or two or three breaths. It's just enough to make sure that you have the valve open and you watch your pressure gauge, make, sh- make sure it doesn't drop.
1: Uh, and then you're also talking about an ice dive because if you're going in the river, it's easy. You duck your head, yes. you know, you can come back up. If you're in the pond or something great, you're not going to take a wide stride off the back of a boat and then check your gear.
0: No, no, definitely. I mean, you know,
1: you would come off the back of the ladder and do it slowly, making sure, like you said, you're, you're acclimated to the water with your face before you put it in and breathe. Mm-hmm. And you're holding on to the ladder.
0: But you want that first stage to be submerged in the water before you breathe. Because even though that that water is near freezing, uh, it's still warmer than what your first stage will be after uh, taking that compressed gas and and it loses pressure. It's going to draw that heat. Uh, That's why uh, another thing, I don't know if we talked about in this, but if you've got those uh, stress relievers on your hoses... Uh, pull back those off four or five inches, you know, move them down the middle cord. I like them on for like warm water diving just to protect my gear, but, uh, that can be a source of, uh, you know, you're, you're insulating that hose and when that hose gets sub zero temperatures, then you're just, uh, creating that condition which can lead to a, a free fall.
1: Yeah, you don't want to cover up your heat sink.
0: Yes. And that's what you have to look at. That's why they, they talked about when you're going through those European standards, uh, the lightweight is that you've got less mass uh, to act as a, a heat or to dissipate. So that's, that's an excellent, some excellent tips
1: there. Well, like I said, I, I did a little reading on a lot of different items, and it was quite revealing. I hadn't realized that because usually when I'm ice diving, it's like I want the most air I can take in case I have a free flow. Hmm. Well, duh, maybe I'm going to give myself a free flow because I got that. Yes. And I know I'm going to be down there 20 minutes, so do I really need that? No. And do I have my bailout? Yep. So I think on my next ice dive, I will be making sure I watch my time limit, and I will be doing a little less aggressive on my tank fills.
0: Yes, true. Uh, that's, uh, that's something I hadn't thought about. But if you start off with that higher pressure, you're you're more likely to To free flow, and and I would have thought the same thing. I would have thought I, I want that more air because then that just gives me more variance. You know, if something does happen, I've got more air to uh, before it would run out.
1: Right, you know, I was reading up on the wetsuit stuff again. The wetsuits you have nowadays are so far superior to what we had ten years ago. It's unimaginable if you didn't dive back then. The only disadvantage I see to some of the newer ones, like the factors in in, in your wetsuit, of course, is quality of the wetsuit, the age of the neoprene, the number of dives on the suit, the actual temperature at the depth that you can be or the varying depths can result in dramatic changes to the insulation ability of the wetsuit. If you take a a brand new suit and you dive it, uh, it appears that most people around here as recreational divers, maybe get 10 dives in a year. And that suit will last them several years, four or five before they start thinking it's getting a little chilly. Well, we dive that very easily in a year, year and a half. And then you're wondering why that next year when the weather comes around, it's like, man, I need another (laughs) wetsuit. When you start looking at that aspect, it's like, when you start looking at the cost of a new wetsuit every two years, if you're doing ice diving, it becomes more palatable when you start thinking about buying that dry suit.
0: Yes. Because yeah, if you're going to stick with a wetsuit, I mean, and I dove mine, gosh, would I have that six or seven years, uh, which I never thought well, you, I, I would have it you, that you, long.
1: Yeah. Well, you recall when you wrote that article in 2010, what we had done two months prior. I have the pictures. That was uh-huh. your first ice dive. Yes. Yeah, and that's lessons learned
0: yes the uh, because how they're making the the wetsuit uh, because I didn't get an opportunity to dive in the the olden days <laughs> but uh, I, I understand that those the neoprene was a little tougher to get on yeah uh, they didn't they hadn't got, come up with a technique where they were super saturating the uh, the neoprene with air which also made it stretchier so you ended up with a, a material that had more insulation value but was also easier to get on. As you start taking that wetsuit in your cycles in the water, uh, every time it's you know it's kind of like popping those uh, uh, packing cushions. You know the 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 neoprene between the little bubbles uh, starts to break down and uh, they compress more. And over time, you lose some of that insulation value.
1: Well, the key items nowadays on a good wetsuit and or semi dry. You've got seals at the neck, the wrist, and the ankles to keep the water from entering the suit. You've got rolled, smooth skin seals against your wrist, we need to have. Your seams are glued and blind stitched, so you don't have the penetration through both sides of the fabric or the materials. Uh, the modern stretch neoprene, along with having lycra, which stretches, increases your comfort and flexibility. Because traditional neoprene is stiff, <laughs> but it does res- you know resist compression better. The newer suits are more flexibility. You know you have much more flexibility in them. And the key item again for a wetsuit is it, you're you're going to suffer if it's poor fitting. If you got the pumping effect when you stretch, oh, yes. like when your arms go up and down under your armpits, I don't care what you got, you're going to freeze your butt off. But we can talk about wetsuits some other day.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, good tips. And if we've missed one, which I we, we'd like to learn more, uh, send us a line of what we missed and uh, we'll share it with everyone.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, nobody knows all the answers to everything. And just because we do it one way doesn't mean there's not a better way or an alternate way. So, yeah, I'd love to hear it also from those who have experienced it to find out how they did it on their side of the world.
0: Okay, so we do have a uh, couple articles to finish up with, and then we can talk about any dives if there have been any. Uh, you know, I should have probably loaded up these articles while we were talking. Uh, did did, you, did anybody happen to get any dives in in the last week? I mean, we've been having lots of well, actually, of Kevin rain. got in today. Oh, did
1: he? He finally got a good t- detox dive in today, and I believe it was like sixteen. Oh, nice. I think, uh, I think the visibility out there, I think it was like 16 anyway. And, uh, I believe the max depth today was 84 feet. Visibility was 15 foot at the platform, uh, but got progressively worse as they went deeper. There it had maybe 5 foot at the bottom. Uh, temperature there was 42 on the bottom, 47 at the top. So it's getting semi dry suit and dry if you've got them weather. Uh, He said the biggest item is he didn't see any fish. Hmm. And as we talk about other dives, uh, I dove in uh, Sunday over at Pawpaw, and uh, Brian and Marie dove. And the purpose was to get out the dry suits, do a little uh, pre-diving, if you know what I mean. I mean, we got the uh, turkey dive coming up, so I don't want that to be my first dry suit dive of the year. So I went out there to get a little dry time. Uh, The water was in the high 40s. Visibility was very good, probably 10, 15 feet. Saw zero fish and tons of zebra mussels. And they're basically killing all the clam beds. And if there was any uh, crayfish left, I'd be surprised.
0: Wow, that's pretty sad.
1: And I did post some pictures on that. So if you don't know what one looks like, this will be what it is. But the amazing part to me is I took a couple of clumps, small samples, like a big... You remember the old one when you played marbles, if you ever did? The Mm -hmm. steelies that are pretty good size? Yeah. I took a clump like that, and I took them home just to see how many were in that clump. I quit at 60. Oh, wow. Because some are, are really like you look at your fingernails, and you see the little white part of your fingernail. Yeah. Down there by the cuticle. That's how small some of those are. And the filaments coming out are tenacious as hell I was using dykes and needle nose to pull them apart so I could get a feel for what they could do and if they're growing around the lip of your mouth if you're a clam you're not going to be able to open your lid
0: no no, they hold on real well uh, let's see That's still loading gosh I wasn't that prepared let me try hit refresh here again
1: um, well what are you looking for the porn hub yeah, that, that first one. Yeah, that's Pornhub Extreme Sports Sponsorship. And you want me to go ahead and read some of it? Yeah, go ahead and read it. Okay. Whoa. Sorry about that. Uh, Pornhub looks to sponsor a snowboarding team. Uh, marketing ploy or not, it looks like Pornhub is getting to a new line of business. It is technically still in the business of... Slipping and sliding, but this time it will be offering less scantily clad uniforms for the whole crew. Currently running a one-year sponsorship contest, Pornhub is on the search to sponsor all types of action sports enthusiasts, including snowboarding. They have sponsored water polo, field hockey, street basketball, and other teams in the past. And according to a press release from Pornhub's vice president, they're looking to diversify their portfolio. So in a world of fake news, oddly enough, it seems this might be the real deal.
0: Okay. I've got it to come up. So uh, let me see if I can find. There is one section that I was uh, particularly uh, from the interested
1: New From the New York Times part?
0: Yeah. Well, the yeah, from the New York Times. You're right. Uh, and let me see.
1: I found it if you don't.
0: Yeah, it says, the call is open to teams worldwide participating in any action or adventure sport, be it free-flying, rock climbing, scuba diving, or anything in between. All are urged to apply so long as regulation-sized teams are able to enter as a whole. The sponsorship will last for a year and cover all team expenses, including brand-new custom Pornhub uniforms. So I I think that there's an opportunity here. Uh, So I'm thinking the Mud Club. So we should bring this up at the next meeting. So the sponsorship will last for you, and you cover all team expenses, which I don't know if they understand what scuba diving as a team expense would include, but custom Pornhub uniforms. So I'm thinking Pornhub uh, dry suits because you'd need something to stencil to.
1: I'm trying to think about (laughs) if you're a church group or something, how (laughs) – Awkward that would be to try to get sponsorship from them.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think your uh, your uh, cross country skiing church group may not want to. But I, I'm not, I'm also kind of wondering a regulation size team. So what is a regulation size team of scuba divers? Is that two, two, two. <laughs>
1: two, two, three, 40? Well, two is you know buddy, but you know they always say yeah. buddy dive yeah. so. One would think the minimum would be that.
0: Yeah. yeah and enter as a whole.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure my wife would really want me wearing a suit with porn <laughs> <haul. I'll>, uh, <laughs> well, My kids, I, I, ah, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I mean, I got some skydiving buddies who would, you know, jump <laughs> at the chance for helmets. And, yeah, I'd do that. But uh, Well,
0: yeah, I mean, sky sure. skydiving, because you, you got your canopy. Indeed. I mean, we do new
1: jumps and all that kind of stuff. So hey, that fits right <laughs> on in. Yeah. yeah.
0: So uh, I'm I'm thinking that they probably are looking more for, you know, eighteen to twenty three year old uh, scuba diving club, you know, on a, I can't say university, but it would be something not affiliated, so the school couldn't get in your way. But I think that would be more to the image. I don't think that the uh, the the profile of our dive club is really what they'd be looking for. That Especially would be that would be a, our age. <laughs> that that would be that would be a story in itself. Yeah, <laughs>
1: geriatric <porn laughs> hub Oh, well, I say one thing: you do you do cover a wide assortment of <laughs> items that can be related to diving.
0: If you look hard enough, you can tie anything in scuba diving.
1: How did you mean that? <laughs> tie uh no hard
0: enough <laughs> oh. <laughs> Uh i'm just say <laughs> we we may have to change this this episode's rating ah but the next one <laughs> going from uh adult websites to uh, women and children on shipwrecks uh how how an elusive maritime custom evolved and waned uh there are Outrage headlines in the world when about 80 women and children were left to die freezing in the North Atlantic off Newfoundland Newfoundland as crew members raced to save themselves. This was September 27, 1854. A luxury ship, Arctic, had collided in heavy fog with a steamer, Vesta, off Cape Race, NL. What's that? NL, it's Canada. Is that Newfoundland? Is that NL?
1: I'm not sure, but it sounds good.
0: I mean, uh, we'll go with that. That's uh, We could be wrong. Killing an estimated 350 people. Editorial writers and readers were incensed over the blatant violation of what's total, uh, what is today considered an increasingly archaic custom. Women and children first. Public anger over the Arctic helped shape the most mythic tradition of the nautical gallantry in the face of death, but also was still an inconsistent practice in the decades that followed. Is now seen as an anchor... Chronistic, sort of Victorian throwback to no legal weight, said Rogers Marsters, uh, curator of the marine history at the Marine, at the Maritime Museum of the Atlantic in Halifax. It is certainly not a rule as any force of international maritime law, he said in an interview. At its best, it was a custom, but more realistically, I think it's an ideal that espoused more often than it is observed. Historically, Far more men survive shipwrecks than women, and more women survive than children, he said in an interview. Titanic's officers and crews actually enforced women and children first. Just over 700 people would be rescued from lifeboats and makeshift raft after the so-called unsinkable ship went down and it's striking an iceberg on April 15, 1912, about 600 kilometers off Newfoundland's southeast tip. More than 1,500 people died. They included almost 80% of the male crew whose discipline had been immortalized in plays and movies of the great ship sinking. Overall, the survival rate in the Titanic of men was about 20% compared to about 74% for women and 52% for children. The cry women and children first is initially traced to the wreck of the HM troop ship Birkenhead off South Africa after it struck a reef and sank in February 26, 1852. On board were more than 600 military personnel, including the members of the Queen's 2nd Royal Regiment of Foot the captain ordered 25 women and 29 children to be launched into a cutter, one of the few lifeboats available. Accounts of the night described how troops who mustered on listing deaths as a vessel began to tilt, her stern rising obeyed orders not to move until those passengers were safely away. Rudyard Kipling hailed their sacrifice in a poem, Soldier and Sailor too, with the line, But to stand and be still to the Birkin, Ed drilled is a damn tough bullet to chew. The Arctic disaster off Newfoundland two years later was notorious as very different every man for himself response. Newspaper accounts said several of the Arctic's lifeboat capsized in rough waters as panic erupted despite the captain's attempts to restore order. There were reports that crew members seized remaining lifeboats, leaving about 80 women and children to die. A study in 2012 by Swedish economists at Uppsala University suggested what happened on the Arctic was no isolated incident. In analyzing 18 maritime disasters from 1852 to 2011, involving more than 15,000 passengers and crews from 30 countries, it found that women had survival advantage over men in just two of those incidents, the Titanic and the Birkenhead. In 11 other shipwrecks, women were at a disadvantage. In five more, there was no clear distinction. Indeed, we find that crew members had a relative survival advantage in nine of the 19 disasters, wrote co-authors Michael Eldender and Oscar Erickson. Crews are likely to be more familiar with a vessel and have emergency training get early details of danger, the study noted. Men are often physically stronger than women. In the evacuation of a sinking ship, success is typically determined by the ability to move fast through corridors and stairs, which is often made difficult by heavy list, congestion, and debris. Captains with ultimate authority on board set the tone in a crisis, said, it says, Francisco Scoleto, Scelet, uh, was Captain Italian Cruiser, the coast of Concordia, oh yeah, we remember him, that partially sank after hitting the rocks off the island of uh, Gilio in January 13, 2012, killing 32 passengers and crews. He was sentenced to 16 years in prison for manslaughter, causing the shipwreck and abandoning ship. He would later say that as chaos broke out during the frantic evacuation, he slipped and landed on the roof of a lifeboat. There's no legal requirement that women and children get priority during rescues at sea, says maritime lawyer Peter Swanson of the Vancouver-based firm Berker uh, Bernard LLP. It's sort of Victoria-era custom that developed in the late 19th century, he said in an interview. It could raise a charter of rights challenge if applied in modern times. Women today obviously are viewed as much more able to take care of themselves.
1: Still leaves the kids though.
0: Yeah, you can make more.
1: <laughs> well, in, in the days now, especially in the military where uh, male and female are in the same area where roadside bombs take out everybody, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, women and children first, well, everybody's in the same boat there. Yeah. But there is still the tendency as a male, through my experience, that you would try to take care of a female as probably a little more than you would a male.
0: I, I think so, uh, especially in some of the, I, I mean, the, the broadly stereotype. I think many of the people who uh, may enter the military would, would have that sort of position. But uh, it is interesting to know that uh, on the... Sinking of ships—that there is no nothing really formalizes more public opinion, and
1: uh... well, that would really be hard to enforce. And the chaos of a ship sinking after a collision and fires, like the captain, blah blah. The captain's way up on the deck, trying to keep the boat from sinking, mm-hmm. you know. And if it's a on cause, he and probably a communication system went to heck in a handbasket. So to say he's in charge of everything, um, a good trained crew. Goes, you goes know, a long way towards resolving issues.
0: Yeah. Well, and then you wonder, are you actually reducing the chance of saving people by creating some sort of artificial order? Uh, you know, because ideally, I mean, in a, in a dream situation, you've got plenty of notice that something's going to happen. You have plenty of lifeboats. So your goal is at the point where you make the decision that people need to get into lifeboats. You want to get them in as orderly as possible. So it makes sense to put family units together when possible, you know, and then that the children should go with the parents to separate the family just so that you can, you know, segregate by gender to make sure it's all covered. just doesn't make sense and actually probably reduces the survivability.
1: Yeah, the circumstances are so varied it would be a real tough. You can't Monday morning quarterback that.
0: Yeah. So, first rules: don't sink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if you if you can if you can avoid it, don't sink. Don't run into icebergs. Uh, so that does it for scuba news. Uh, if you want to find out more information, you can take a look at our show notes, which are usually put up within a week. Uh, there are Patreon supporters, which we'd love to have more of them, especially as we come time to renew some of our services. Uh, go to our website www.scubobsess.com click on one of the patreon links and you know if you're getting any value like if you learned something from the tips that matt gave today on cold water diving uh, and a, that helped you at all kept you warmer uh, helped steer you in a direction of gear you're going to get so then why not you why don't you share some of that value back with the show so we can keep offering this content <whistles> On Twitter, we're at Scoob Obsessed. On Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Scoob Obsessed. Um, uh, let's see. Is there anything else that we've got to cover this week?
1: Not really. It's it's hard to imagine, though. This is uh, the 9th and the 25th. We've got the turkey dive. So people who are out there, club members, think about that and get ready before that time we also have uh, veterans day is saturday
0: yes yes we definitely need to thank our veterans and there's a couple articles we had which were talking about some fundraisers going along along with that so we'll try and get those posted as well
1: well there's some really nice places here uh, a lot of like martin's and rogers uh, are offering a free meal for veterans i've mm-hmm. uh, been doing that several years and i've attended several of those and i enjoy it uh it's a, a fellowship time for a lot of the guys that meet others that they knew in the service and or the other services around here. I'm I'm, I'm Army, and there's a, a tremendous number of Navy guys based on nuclear power plants and being a reactor operator on a submarine. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of buddies are, are Navy guys, surface skimmers or uh, bubbleheads. Yeah, <laughs> no, nothing really derogatory there. No, it's not at all. A, a fun thing. They understand it.
0: Uh, yeah, because because uh, my dad was, uh, I just it was my mom's birthday today, and I gave her a call, and she was saying that my dad was uh, had already had plans for his uh, Veteran Day meal, being one of those uh, uh, nuke guys on the submarines. So,
1: yep, I usually call Ed, and uh, this time is a little different because we got a football game Saturday, but uh, I don't feel like having dinner at or noontime lunch at ten o'clock. <laughs> 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 now, if we had a Denny's, I'd love to go to the breakfast, though. Oh, yeah. But there's lots of guys who aren't home to be able to go out and do that. Yeah. Uh, Mary Beth, for example, her kids, her boys are, are home on leave right now. One stationed uh, in Washington, I believe, and one is from Korea. And so they'll be going out and about again. They've been in quite a few years now. Mm-hmm. Well, i take it. You got a nice joke
0: for tonight? I think... I've got uh, the continuation. So Jim cut me off last time, and I'm trying to remember where I was. So we'll see how many of these we can get through. It may it may just be be too much. Uh, well, to, just to tolerate, just do
1: a little, a couple of samples.
0: Okay, so maybe we'll do. I think four. Uh, okay, I'm 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 finding my spots. I didn't like my beard at first, but then it grew on me. A cross-eyed teacher lost her job because she couldn't control her pupils. When you get a bladder infection, you're in trouble. What does a clock do when it's hungry? It goes back four seconds. I wonder why the ball was getting bigger, then it hit me. And then broken pencils are pointless. Some of those are
1: cute mean, so, you know, nobody's groaning from those.
0: No, no, those, those are those are survivable. You know, we we made it out. Women and children can get in the lifeboats first and cover their ears, but uh, we're able to survive it. So, until next time, go out there and get wet,
1: and stay safe and warm.
0: has been completed.